Welcome to Lineouts by Earful of Dirt, bringing you conversations with rugby newsmakers about the greatest sport on the planet. Hello, we're live. Uh, I'm here with Bruce Atchison, I think I said that right, but uh, of Happiness is Egg-Shaped. Um, yeah, you got it, you got it. And... Uh, He's got uh, an interesting story to tell. Uh, if you follow the Happiness is Egg Shaped blog, you can also. Hey, when when are you gonna get those uh, those knit caps back in stock? I need I need one of those. Yeah, I need to I need to look at the merchandise. Unfortunately, because this thing doesn't make any money, anything that I do comes out of my pocket. So, yeah, <laughs> oh, it, it oh, might I happen. Know. I've been approached by a couple of people who want to do some merchandise. I'm no businessman, so it's uh, it, it could well happen. So, um, I guess for uh, for every rugby person out there, uh, when you think about it, it's. Happiness is egg shaped is a lot. Uh, you get, you get, you had those onesies and, you know, we see a lot of uh, rugby players have their, have their kids and you, you guys congratulate them for on their bundles of joy from time to time. And I know you had interviewed Blaine Scully um, now a couple of years ago uh, for yeah. happiness is egg shaped and he and his wife Shannon just had their first child. So, you know, it's kind of crazy uh, when it comes to, you know, what rugby means. And especially in, in this country, it's a, it's kind of weird. And I don't think people understand it because everything with, with American sport is so cradle to grave. Uh, you, you have your kid and you put them in a jumper of, of your favorite sports team. And, and they are fans of, of that team or that sport their entire life. And there are not that many people that are cradled to grave rugby fans in this country specifically um so I, I i think another cradle to grave rugby fan for the americans has just begun um been born in uh in blaine and shannon scully's first child so that's pretty cool yeah uh so so your story i mean you are a, a rugby coach you're a physical education teacher in in scotland um, or are you on the south side of the border? Because he says no, no, there. I'm in Scotland. I'm in God's country. God's country. Ah, uh, a beautiful and rainy place. I, I remember I met Gavin Hastings a couple of years ago, and he talked about what he does in retirement, which is usually tells his wife that he's going to go hike a Monroe for the day. And when uh, Adam uh, got the call for his first cap, which was against the United States. Um, and he came to Houston to watch that. Uh, he was hiking a Monroe and I think he said, I hiked, he hiked four Monroes, which are these for anyone who doesn't know what a Monroe is. It's a mountain in Scotland and like people just go out and walk on them for, which I find astounding at top specifically but <laughs> so he got home and his wife told him that at, like he's like i tried calling you like several times he's like i was out hiking monroe's <laughs> and uh she's like well adam got the call up we have to go to the states um for this game <laughs> and uh he was already planning on being uh in houston for the uh for the USA Scotland game because he'd been, uh, I guess, 
paid an appearance fee to talk about his his life as a Scottish rugby player, which I went to, I guess, the lunch that he spoke at, and it was great. It was a great time. And then um, after the U.S. defeated Scotland, he uh, – I wouldn't say he went into the night. He was just here um, at the various bars outside of the, the stadium, um, Flower of Scotland, every time he uh, – <laughs> Every time he yeah. came through, he's like, trying any sorrows. So it was a, it was a fun time. But so you have uh, you know um, led a led an interesting life. You played down in New Zealand um, in a different time, really. I mean, it was the advent of professionalism and club rugby was different, especially in the United States. Uh, what was playing in New Zealand like in the late 90s, early 2000s? Well, New Zealand is like you're talking about with the States. It's a cradle to the grave game, rugby. Everyone knows about rugby. You could be in the supermarket and an 80-year-old woman could be stood behind you in the in the checkout queue and she has an opinion on the All Blacks. She knows who the players are. She knows that at the time, they were a tough time. She would tell you that Carlos Spencer should be playing with Andrew Mertens. It was just an unbelievable place. And all the boys who played in the, the teams I was around, they all had the basic skills. They could all run. They could all catch and pass. They could all kick. They could all tackle. They understood the game. And that was something that coming from Scotland, and I'm from an area of Scotland where rugby is the number one game, but the, the level in New Zealand was just way above what I had experienced it with the basic skills. And that was because they grew up throwing around an egg, whereas kids in Scotland grew up kicking around a soccer ball. And then you find rugby around 10, 11, 12. And that's really when most kids make their choice, whereas in New Zealand, they've been playing since they were five or six, playing barefoot in lots of touch games. And then they graduate into wearing their cleats and playing contact and, and then they just grow up watching the Ox and watching club rugby and at the time it was the super rugby was really flying. It was the it was the game that was attracting a lot of attention. That was beginning to attract attention in the States because it was it was more stimulating to the, the States audience with a basketball style, throw the ball around, excitement, lots of tries, lots of scoring, lots of crazy skills guys like Carlos Spencer just carving it up and those were the kind of guys that really appealed to the audience in the States but for me it was a huge learning curve just being immersed in that situation and that culture and certainly made me a better player but also gave me the experience to look at when I became a coach and try and draw on some of the things that I'd seen in New Zealand. And then um, at a certain juncture you decided to come here for a year um, to as you told me before we started uh, to not start real life. And this is a period in American rugby that there isn't a lot written about. And in fact, there's not a lot written about uh, pre-internet that is not in, I would say, um, paper editions of rugby magazine that uh, pretty much no longer exists. The archives of the company, uh, they they stopped publishing their online edition last year of a, it was it was called Rugby Today um, for a variety of reasons but there's whatever is um, I guess written about what was the first major league rugby and not connected to this to major league rugby today 
but it was a uh, when I speak to people about that competition is that the USA rugby had a sanctioned competition. It was called the rugby super league. And this was basically a rogue competition that was specifically competing against the rugby super league to be tier one status in the United States. And, but you played in that. What was, I mean, yeah. What was that time like? Cause I mean, I was 2000, like 2000, 2001, I was in the sixth grade and had never heard of the, never <laughs> heard the word rugby, let alone knew where a rugby club was. And, and, and to this day where my hometown is the closest rugby club is still 40 for children is like 30 miles away. Um, so that, that says I, how much different rugby is in the States today. Although like in Southern California, like there are a lot more rugby clubs than there were in for kids in, uh, in 2001, but they still don't, the roots don't go deep enough in certain regions. Yeah. I, uh, I, I was, a a student at Edinburgh University and just didn't really want to leave university, get a job, settle down, get a mortgage, do all that. I was looking overseas and rugby was going to be the way that was going to help me to travel. I'd already been to New Zealand, I'd toured, uh, I'd toured America, uh, sorry, Canada with my school before I went to university. I'd been involved in some, some good squads and just had this feeling that rugby could help me to travel and see the world and, and delay real life for a bit. So I went to the little IT suite at university. I made myself an email address, which people still laugh at because I've got it to this day, although it's it's not used as often, but I, I still sometimes use it. And I scoured the internet as it was there, some pretty terrible club websites and, and typed it into America and started to send emails to the clubs that were registered as being the major league. I couldn't find anything. I, and the Super League was not something I was aware of until I landed in the States. And I sent some emails to a few different clubs. I got in touch with Murray Wallace, who'd played for Scotland and was with Boulder. And life was pretty good for him in Boulder. And the only thing I knew about Boulder was that Mark and Minnie was there. So Boulder seemed pretty cool to me. Uh, but that didn't quite come off. And the Albany Knickerbockers got back in touch. Uh, a South African guy called Yaku Visser was running the club in Albany and sent a message to say, would I be able to come during spring break? So spring break for me was a month. So I went to my university and asked if I could get a two-week extension on my spring break because I told them I had job interviews lined up, which wasn't strictly true, but I did speak to the next to see if they could hook up some schools to speak to. So I got a message about a month before the departure to say that they had asked for a South African guy to come over, but he'd been declined a visa to get into the States. So they asked, do you know anyone that would be ready and willing to come? Can they play lock forward? Can they play in the back row? And I got in touch with a mate of mine, Richie Maxton, who was a far better rugby player than me, but he was a, he was a good guy. I managed to persuade him to get on a plane with me to go to JFK and we got picked up by 
Yaku, who was a South African guy we've been in touch with over email, and a Namibian guy called Lucas Boshoff, who was going to be the coach of the Knicks. And they took us up. They dropped us off at a, a house in the middle of Albany, and that was us. We'd arrived. We went trading in a horse barn because it was still between winter and spring. And we trained in this horse barn. And the guys were a mixture of experience. Some of them were, you know, in their 30s, but had only played rugby for two or three years. Some guys had just picked the game up. So the skill level and, and the knowledge of the game wasn't that high. But they... They like I played at fly half. Richie played in the forwards, so he took care of the lineouts, and I took care of a lot of the attack. And we ended up leading a lot of the training sessions and trying to help the boys and educate them. And we just had a hell of a time. It was just so much fun. The guys were so welcoming and friendly, as as you'll know that rugby people tend to be. And they looked after us, and, and we tried to put as much into the club as we could. And within two games, I was made captain. So that was that was a huge honour, um, and as you're beginning to find out, I like to talk. So it was uh, it was an easy thing for for me to take over. And I remember we had um, the backs wanted to have a meeting. They wanted me to give them some set plays. So they'd organised this meeting at Todd Martin's house, and I rocked up to this house in Albany that looked like the kind of thing I'd watched on TV shows here in America. It had the white picket fence. It had the huge truck in the driveway. It had the double garage, and we walked into his room, and the TV in the corner was the biggest TV I'd ever seen in my life in a house. And they had this this uh, clipboard at the front with calls on it and the seats were all lined up and they had as much pizza as we could throw down our throats and Big Richie just stood at the back and just laughed at this sort of crazy situation we found ourselves in. So we watched the tape of the game and then they said, right, give us some plays. So that was quite an American thing at the time. They wanted a call and then they wanted to know who ran where and, and what they were to do. And I was trying to we'd been working in training I was trying to get through to them that actually sometimes you just have to play what's in front of you and you can't you can't make calls too far ahead so I stood up and gave this big long speech and I drew diagrams on the flip chart and I and I went into it and they were all going yeah, yeah man yeah, yeah and they asked a few questions and and then I said is there any questions and one of the guys just said yeah but can you give us some play <laughs> <laughs> so I had 15 minutes giving this rugby lecture and they just wanted some plays and my mate Richie was sat at the back of the room just peeing his pants laughing that I had spent all this time talking but actually all they wanted was some set plays but they, they learned so much and it was just awesome and in one of the first games I caught the ball and I ran across and my inside centre came on a cut and I gave a scissors and he went straight in and scored and the referee gave a penalty against me and said that I had obstructed the opposition, which is now it's one of the most common backline things that, that happens. But the referee, I don't think, had ever seen it before. So he called me for it and, and gave a penalty against me, which I didn't take too kindly to. But we had a chat afterwards and, and we worked out that I was right in the end. It's, you know, Americans, I think, when it comes to rugby, like we're so, so used to football. 
and like set plays and stuff like that. Even in basketball, like uh, the evolution of basketball offenses, even though it's a fluid motion sport like rugby, the offensive systems in basketball have been in place uh, for, for decades upon decades. And I think rugby is just getting there. And I think, you know, you, when I started playing, I wanted a playbook and my team didn't have a playbook. And I'm like, I, well, how am I supposed to learn how to play the game? (laughs) I was a a football player. I was a football player in high school and we would have, we had like a 50 page playbook. And so like I knew I was a, was a linebacker and a a guard. So usually guards don't do a lot, but um, you know, uh, you you still know what you're supposed to do on every call, and obviously the calls in rugby are a little bit different, and they're more fluid. And one of my friends, Gordon Hanlon, he's a he's a very great coach, and and he talks about you know options out of a ruck and your tip options and and what your fly half might tip off, and like what he has to do, and what like is he going to have three options or is he going to have one? And you have to know those calls. And and I'm over here, uh, you know, tra- so so where am I supposed to be? And but I, I and, and that's probably where you know rugby was in, in the United States yeah. in, in 2000, 2001. Like all these guys are coming to you know the foreigners on the team and be like, so about those plates, <laughs> and coaches, let's yeah. show us some plates. Um, so, so they want they, they had a huge desire to learn. They they were they were desperate for knowledge, and they'd come from various different backgrounds there was your football players there was soccer players there was basketball players there was a couple of guys who'd played hockey and just wanted to smash people and there's there's the lacrosse up there in that part of the world so there was guys who'd played a bit of lacrosse so they were coming from all these different backgrounds and like you say they needed something and someone to try and tie the whole thing together but that was that was an exciting thing to be part of and one of the great things about it was they were not carrying any preconceived conceptions. So you were able to say to them, here's how it is. And that became the law because that was how it was. And the the thing that did come a bit clearer was more for the forwards where Big Richie was able to talk them through lineouts. And you had guys who could throw, you know, because Americans can throw, whether it's a baseball or a, or a basketball or a football, Americans can throw. And as soon as he was able to work on the technique of how to lift, I mean, he he was a big streak of piss. I mean, you could throw him miles up in the air. So as soon as we got that down, the line out all of a sudden became, you know, that they just knew how to do it. They And they understood that you had to do a little bit of movement and you had to get the timing right. But it's the kind of thing they enjoyed because you just rep, 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 rep. And then, then they got the hang of it. So there was so much that they took on. And some of them were physical specimens. I mean, some of them were just ready to ready to go and you could see that some of them had missed the boat like you're saying in that generation of america they'd they'd kind of missed the boat for rugby but i know some of them who are still playing for the knicks now because they just love the game so much and and the game for them hasn't moved into professional it's still an amateur sport that guys play as their hobby so they're able to still maintain a a level of performance that gives them a, a bit of a kick at the weekend yeah, I, I think that uh, with the way things are in the United States, it, it's getting very difficult with our, our union having some issues. But I think the the advent of what in the history books could be the second, well, what could be called the second MLR, depending on who's able to find all the other stuff to, to write the book, right? Um, that 
eventually more Americans will learn about rugby and more Americans will continue to play. And as they, you know, I think one of the things that world rugby has tried to stress at the same time is that as much as high performance and professionalism is important uh, to push the game in a certain sense that community rugby and just participation yeah. it remains a key focus uh, of the game. And, and and we've seen that in the United States, the game continues to, to grow. There are, there are some people that said that there are less people playing today than there were playing, you know, in the 1970s, but it's not really true because it, there were like 40, I guess at, at the height of just senior club rugby, I think there were like 30,000, may have been 30,000 people playing, but that was playing. It, you know, like the the collegiate system was integrated or the club system yeah. was integrated with the college game too. So like you have clubs playing colleges and now you have, you know, six-year-olds playing in certain places, which is kind of amazing. Um, in fact, there are a few clubs here in Arizona that have under six, full under six teams. So, uh, but how did like your season go that year? And then like, I guess, what, when did you know that there was like this other, competition that you were sort of competing against when when i arrived we started to hear things about super league and there was the perception that a lot of the south sea islanders and kiwis and aussies were in the super league so it was big you know islanders who were based on the west coast and were able to throw the ball around and you know get some get some cash for whatever it was they were doing and the major league was this this other thing um, but when we arrived, we got given the major league shirts and major league uh, waterproofs for training, and you know life seemed pretty good. So we we arrived and we had a couple of friendly games against local teams, and and we played on a on a pretty tough pitch. The weather had been had been pretty tough. That's why we'd been training in a horse barn, um, and but we played, and then. All of a sudden, the sun came out. The pitches dried up, and the game got a lot quicker. And we played we played some great games in and around Albany, and then we flew down to DC, which for two kids from Scotland was just like a dream come true. I knew New York pretty well because my aunt had got on a boat when she was nineteen and sailed across and met a Catholic Irishman in the Bronx and got married and never came home. So I'd been to New York a couple of times. I'd been down to DC as a kid. But getting to go there with a rugby squad was just was just unreal. So we went down, we played on this pitch and uh, we had a real tough game and then we all went to the Irish bar after and we, you know, the night became a bit fuzzy and but good times were had and, you know, the next day we got up to Baltimore because I think we're flying home from Baltimore. So I went for a walk around the, the baseball stadium up there and then we sat in Hooters and drank beer and, and ate wings for the afternoon. So life seemed pretty good to these two Scots boys who were there. But we did we did well and then we got to Boston for the playoffs and the Knicks actually changed our flights because I don't think they expected us to get to the playoffs. So we actually flew out of Boston and we got changed straight off the pitch into the shower, straight to the airport, and then had to sprint through to make sure we made the flight home. So we, we didn't actually know what the score was because we'd had to leave at half time. So we got a message to say that they'd lost uh, that game when we were in the departure lounge, which was really disappointing because the boys had worked so hard to try and get to that stage of the playoffs. I think we played against the Wolfhounds in Boston, which was... 
and it was in a beautiful setting. And I feel I'm sad that there's not the documentation of it because lots of it is just fuzzy memories now. Um, and going back through some some photographs that I took, but you know, no social media then, so I've not documented any of this stuff. And and I'd have to do a bit of digging. But um, what I'll do is I will have a look through because the Knicks made a, a little brochure, so I'll I'll try and get hold of that and photograph it and send it to you. In amongst all the other rugby memorabilia that's around the place but uh, it, it was such a good time because th those guys and, and a guy called Michael Jones was in the front row and Jonesy claimed and, and here's here's an example of what you're talking about the, the different time he claimed that he'd played for America and Canada because they used to meet to play against Canada and Canada turned up without enough players so he played for Canada so that was the kind of that was the kind of guy Jonesy was but Jonesy was a storyteller and I, I just Jonesy's a I love the guy to bits um, and when when I left a few years later Jonesy went down to Florida to Fort Lauderdale to play in an old boys tournament and the scrum went down and he broke his neck so Jonesy's in a wheelchair um, and what, there's a charity in this country called Hearts and Balls who sent money across to repatriate Jonesy from Fort Lauderdale up to Albany. And a whole load of the Knicks came across a couple of years ago for a Scotland game and made a presentation at halftime at Murrayfield of a cheque almost to repay the, the generosity that Hearts and Balls had shown to Jonesy. And that just shows how small the rugby world is, that a tiny little club in upstate New York had a guy who played in a tournament in Florida and had this accident. A charity in Scotland heard about it, but because of the rugby family, sent money to support. But it was a club that a guy in Scotland had played for. I know heaps of the guys who run the Hearts and Balls charity. So all these things just tied up together. And Jonesy, Jonesy used to say, we can get along or we can get it on. And he, just, and he, he called everybody Buck. Everybody was Buck. Hey, Buck. Hey, Buck. Everybody was Buck. But Jonesy, was, he just had this huge heart. He loved the game of rugby, mostly because of the people he got to meet, the places he got to go, and the stories he got to tell people from all of that. And Jonesy's still going. Uh, the Knicks have a, have a big fundraiser for him every June. They have a golf tournament for Jonesy to try and raise some money and make his life a bit more comfortable. But he was a guy that, you know, I, I'm never going to forget guys like him and Yaku and Charles Colley, who is... Is just he's become one of my best friends. He's over here quite often. He comes across for games at Murrayfield or Twickenham. He comes across most Six Nations, and uh, you know, my I've got two girls, Maisie and Katie, who are eight and ten, and they just love Charles. When we were across on holiday in the states, we met up with Charles, and just another one of these guys that how on earth could I have met him if it wasn't for this great game? So, uh, you know, what what have you been like? doing i mean in the interim i mean you so how do you i guess as a as a teacher and as a rugby coach explain sort of the all this stuff now to your students and to your players because i it's interesting to see what's going on right now and i, I was talking to some people and it was like i was like well it, i mean it's all a meme but you can either come out of I guess this this global emergency, a fitter rugby player, um, a healthier rugby player, or you could come out of it and a less fit rugby player, <laughs> and a less 
healthy <laughs> rugby player and all that stuff. And I, I mean, like before we got on the horn, I went running for 50 minutes and it's just like, well, uh, my, my Corona 15 is going to be the 15 I lose and not the 15 I gain. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a tough one, but the, I mean, the internet's an amazing thing. You see some of the stuff that people are doing. There's, it's going to be such a crazy side effect that from this situation, people could potentially be much healthier, much happier, have actually connected and, and grounded themselves more than than they had before. But the the analysis tools, uh, Coach Logic, who are an amazing analysis tool, they've said that it's going to be free. I think from now until June, so that coaches can still connect with their players. And there's so many people you can follow on Twitter who can give you such an insight into the game. But personally, there's there's so much you can watch and so much you can look at, but actually there is nothing nothing that can substitute throwing a ball around and improving your skills and getting the real joy out of being part of the team that can take you know, the big heavy guys are prop and the big tall guys are lock and the guy that looks like he's never been fed is an open side flanker and the little mouthpiece is a scrum half and the guy at fly half who has the, you know, the clean shorts and all the, the fast guy on the wing. It, it's such an amazing melting pot for, for people to get thrown into. And this situation is probably making people reflect on what it is they find important. My, my biggest worry is that when we come out of it, clubs have they had enough to pay the bills and our club's going to survive if people get out of a routine of going to training two times a week and, and giving up their Saturday, are they going to have decided actually life's pretty good without it? I can, I can manage without it. So that's my big worry. But as you've said about the clubs, uh, a guy I used to coach, a Zimbabwean international who played for, for my club in Edinburgh, Muir, Andy Rose, he's now at Chicago Lions. And he's putting together an amazing program working in schools and working with youth and, you know, some uh, disadvantaged kids and back from backgrounds that are pretty challenging. And he's trying to use rugby as a way to, to get them out. And for them to not have that exposure for a period of time is going to hurt the game. But when you see the things that certain players are doing and certain clubs are doing in England, there's clubs who are giving up their car parks so that the hospital workers can park for free. There's Scarlets and Wales are giving up their stadium and putting beds in it to, to house people. There's uh, the Italian international who's driving an ambulance. You know, you're, you're seeing humanity come, come out here and it's great that rugby has, has taken such a lead in that. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, Mabonda, uh, in, the, in Italy, that was, sort of insane to see in a lot of ways that uh and and it is and i talk i posted about it i think on my personal twitter the over the weekend because i was like wow it is to the point where um you know in certain countries that you need any able-bodied person to um that is qualified to to become a an ambulance driver to become a volunteer emt to to help stem this tide. And then as with, uh, with anything, rugby tends to answer the call. Uh, I mean, was it in world war one? Uh, the RFU suspended all play pretty like at the beginning of the war. And I think the only play that was, I think done executed before the end of the occupation was the King's cup, which is, um, is on my I forget 
there's a book about uh, it's like there's two books there's yeah. after the final whistle which follows a bunch of guys that a, his, a rugby historian wrote and then there's another book that he wrote in sequel to after the final whistle which i don't he calls it the first he calls it the first world cup but i had a conversation with him on twitter about uh the inter-allied games tournament and i was like well you know, there. It's like so. You you, you had your first, you had your Commonwealth Cup up. There. You had your Empire Cup up there, and then and it, and it was interesting. It was an educational conversation because he was like, "Well, I think you know, rugby and cricket were added to the inter-allied games to try to you know get the the Commonwealth uh, forces or not Empire forces, not Commonwealth at the time. Commonwealth would be later, but get all those countries to sort of stick around for a little bit because eventually the inter-allied games of 1918, 1919 set the stage for the 1920 Antwerp Olympics and uh, where rugby was played for the first time in the Olympics. And um, it's just interesting to see, uh, you know, rugby continues to answer the call no matter uh, well, the, the Canadian to... squad in Japan after the you know after the troubles in the World Cup, the Canadian squad were out there clearing up and, and trying to support people, and it's that's you know it, it's becoming one of those catchphrases that clubs and, and nations want good people, and then they'll make them good rugby players, and it's having that set of core values that this game has that hopefully is going to continue you know professionalism can lead to a lot of bad habits and and people to condone certain actions under this sort of guise of professionalism things that are acceptable but those things you know being a human and helping out others is such a fundamental part of this game and when you see the players rallying around and doing that it, it those are the kind of things that are going to help it spread in america you know, families and, and parents and grandparents seeing that actually we're going to develop the character of the individual here. And it's just that rugby is the tool that we're going to use for that. Well, Bruce, thank you uh, for your time uh, this afternoon, this afternoon and this evening <laughs> for you. Uh, and it was great to listen to your stories and we should catch up again. Um, Absolutely. When the, uh, whenever we can play rugby again, Whatever that will be, because at least here there will be no rugby played, at least until July, and there may not even be rugby played at all this summer, and it will pick up again at the end of August, and uh, it's it's going to be an interesting time for for sports in general. I don't I don't just do playing like rugby. I also do a triathlon and, and pretty much every race that I had on my schedule. Yeah. I'm, I'm weird, but you know, Huge Shane work. Williams, Huge Shane work. Williams, the great, yeah. the great Welsh winger is also a triathlete. I am not a back, but um, there's, a, it's, it's actually kind of funny. The amount of uh, rugby players that also do triathlon and I are oh, yeah. talking to people about it. And it's like, well, at a certain point, you're you're so injured, you're so broken that you can't stop training. Or yeah, no, that's a, you, you're in, you're into a habit. It's uh, across here. Uh, you'll probably be aware of Doddy Weir, who's got yeah. MND, and the things that people are doing to raise money and, and awareness for Doddy and his foundation. Rob Wainwright has cycled from one end of. Scotland to the far end of it, uh, England. They've they've cycled from Twickenham to Murrayfield to deliver the match ball. They've you know, and these these rugby players now don't look like the guys 
that played rugby, they've shed a whole load of weight because now they can shift themselves on a bike, and it's it's getting into those you know those habits that are going to be good for you for the rest of your life. Yeah, exactly. So, again, thanks for the chat, and we'll catch up soon. I hope so. Great to speak to you. All the best, America. Stay strong. This has been Lineouts by Earful of Dirt. Connect with Earful of Dirt online. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Earful of Dirt. You can email us at earfulofdirt at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 720-600-2679. For Aaron, Dan, and Victor, I'm Corey. Thanks for listening.